Now in 2016, we took Uber to the labor court at the CCMA, which is the Commission for Conciliation and Mediation. And we actually won the case and were declared employees of Uber. And then Uber took the case on the review to the labor court where we lost the case against Uber. <laughs> so really, you know, uh, who's on whose side here? Is, is our government on our sides? No. So we are left out there in the cold to fend for ourselves. That was Derek Ongansi, the driver from Cape Town, South Africa, that we met in episode two. You might remember that he was one of the early wave of Uber drivers that went to bat for the company, even testifying on Uber's behalf before a parliamentary hearing. But then the tide turned, and drivers started facing fines and their vehicles were impounded, while Uber claimed it had no responsibility for them. Finally, he and other drivers turned to South Africa's courts to try to establish that they were actually the company's employees, and so Uber was responsible. Derek's story was like other stories I heard in other countries. In this episode, we'll talk about what happened when drivers looked to the courts to step in. I'm Bama Athreya, and you're listening to The Gig. This episode is called Judgment Day, and I want to bring you back to two of the people we met in episodes one and two. Two London-based drivers named Yasin and James. Here's James. So I was a classic gig economy um, acolyte. You know, I drank the Kool-Aid. I thought this is something I could do on the side while I pursued other things. And I'd have the flexibility to work, you know, 90 hours one week, none for the next two. I, you know, I could do what I, I could do what I liked. Um, I bought into that. Uh, and so I went off and bought a vehicle and registered uh, for Uber and off to work I went. But I quickly realized the reality was very different from what the promise would be. And then the following March was the really, it was the one incident that became formative for me. I was assaulted on the job and, um, you know, the police came out and they took a report from me and they wanted to know who the passenger was. And um, I thought again, well, look, you know, this is, this is good because this is a, you know, this is a data-driven um, enterprise. And of course, the, the one good thing about Uber is they're going to have the data. They're going, to, they're going to know exactly who that person is, where they live, what their credit card number is, um, and will be what their phone number is. And we'll be able to trace them immediately for the police. And um, what I found is over 10 weeks, Uber twisted and turned and avoided uh, and refused to disclose to the police who that passenger was. Wow. Even though you had filed a police report and the police were looking into it. Well, not only that, they refused to not only cooperate with me, and, and in, a, in, a, in one respect, I can understand why they wouldn't um, want to release, because, you know, under data protection rules, they wouldn't want to give me, they wouldn't want to disclose to me, just on my say-so, the identity of that passenger, even though the passenger Uber would say in later employment tribunal that that, that customer was my customer, not their customer. Um, but that was a question that the police raised to me the next day is, well, why wouldn't they give you the data about who, the, who your customer was? Because it was your customer, wasn't it? Uh, it's unclear whether it was why, why Uber was behaving that way, why they were st stolen the police. What was really concerning is that in the end, the police said to me, well, 
you know, this has taken up a lot of our time and how important is this to you? Should we just, you know, drop it and let it go? Because we don't, you know, we can't, we don't have endless amounts of police time to put into this. And at that point, I just said, no, no, actually, in that case, then I really do want this to carry on because I, you know, I, then we would let Uber win. Um, we would let them, you know, through a strategy of, of delay and, and filibuster, wear everybody out and, you know, we all give up and walk away. James is the former Uber driver we first met in episode one, who, as you've just heard, decided not to just walk away. Little did he realize his case would become the center not just of national, but international attention. It turned into a a turnaround case where drivers started to take control over their employment and their lives. I asked him to describe what happened when he took on the company. Well, I called a lawyer because I, I just wasn't happy with the situation. And I called um, a law firm that I, was, that I was aware of that had been involved in high profile social justice cases, corporate responsibility cases like, you know, the Shell case in Nigeria and so on. And, and I just just randomly called them and somebody from from the team called back. Uh, I was an employment lawyer and we started talking through it and I sent the contracts over and I was, you know, I was thinking in terms of safety, protection and, and duty of care, uh, you know, health and safety requirements and so on. And, um, you know, basically what the lawyer is saying is, well, like none of, none of those are going to apply to you. You're, you have any rights in that area because you're not employed. Um, the only thing you might be is you might be this interim Um, status of worker. James went forward with that case and learned a lot, not just about employment law, but other aspects of law too. If you listened to episode two, you might remember that James told me about a tax evasion case that was brought in the UK while he was bringing his employment law case. It's possible that Uber has evaded over one billion pounds worth of taxes in the UK. That's just one country. I have to admit, I started to get curious about the battles over employment status and what they might have to do with tax evasion. We went forward and we were heard and we won that case in 2016. Um, And we won absolutely emphatically. If you read the ruling, it's absolutely scathing of Uber. You know, that that their claims were uh, faintly ridiculous, you know, the well, idea. What, what did Uber say? What was their case against, you know, when you brought your case, what were you asking for and what was their response? Well, we were asking to be recognized as workers under the law and the right to minimum wage and on holiday pay. Um, and and Uber's, Uber's first argument was... Um, that the case shouldn't even be heard in the United Kingdom because we were contracted by Uber's Uber BV Netherlands, so it's it's Dutch entity. Um, Uber resides most most of its business outside the UK is based in the Netherlands, primarily for tax reasons, um, and it is the contracting entity. And um, what Uber what Uber tried to argue was this complicated thing. Um, it said Uber BV Netherlands is the entity that runs the platform and hires the drivers. And Uber London Limited is the company that, you know, uh, transacts with the customers, offers the rides to the customers and so on and so on. Um, so what, what Uber tried to argue in court, first of all, was that according to our contract, we're, 
we're engaged by Uber BV Netherlands. So any claim we might want to bring would have to be brought in the Netherlands and would be subject to arbitration there. But the court immediately threw that out and said, look, you know, um, these are, we're talking about statutory rights. And so therefore they have to be heard here in the United Kingdom, not in the Netherlands. What James told me was a lot like what Derek told me. In South Africa, Uber put forward the claim that it didn't employ anyone and that all the drivers were contracted by the Netherlands office. Unfortunately for Derek and his colleagues, the South African courts accepted that argument and threw out the case for lack of standing. But this legal issue got even more complicated as I heard about what was happening in other countries. In Canada, drivers were fighting to get out of a clause in their driver agreements about forced arbitration, a clause which actually required them to go to the Netherlands if they had a dispute. Why would a company make it this difficult for a driver to bring a simple issue to resolution right in the jurisdiction where they worked? I got to ask an expert that question, as we'll hear in just a bit. But first, I think I'd better explain how Yassine, the other London driver that I met, came into the picture. So, two, 2015, I, in, I think it's February 2015, I got into my car, I logged into my app, I just planned that I'm going to be working that day. I logged into my app and I couldn't log on. Yeah, and I was ready. Everything told my kiss, my kid, my goodbye. I'm going out. I'm gonna work all night. Come back. I couldn't log on. But I carried on driving into London, thinking it might be a signal problem. So I live in Highwicombe, just on the outskirts. So it's about 40 minutes drive into Highwicombe. So I drove all the way into London, trying to log on, log on. I couldn't, and I had all these thoughts in my head, thinking, what happened? Like, has uh, Uber cut me off? You know, like, why am I getting myself... Because, by the way, in between this pit, I was actually making decent money because I was an experienced driver. I knew what time to be at airport. I knew where the clubs were shutting. So I was all right in terms of... And I never had any uh, issues. Yasin proceeded to tell me his story about how he picked up some pub-goers one night and they became verbally abusive toward him while they were in his car. He felt threatened, so he asked them to get out of his car. They complained to the company, which then immediately deactivated him. So he went to what's called a green hub, a place where drivers can go and get technical assistance if they have a problem with the app. The manager liked me, and I still have respect for some of the staff because it's nothing. I'm not against any employees. Our issue is against the working practice and trying to make sure... So, yeah, he turned me back. And one of the things I mentioned at the time, I said, look, why, are you, why did you do this to me? You know, I lost that three, four days of work now because of this. But at the same time, you got an issue here because the industry is so regulated in London. You have to have... So I'm, I'm licensed as a driver. My car is licensed. So is um, Uber. They have to have an operator's license. Now, one of the conditions by transport for London is for them to keep uh, documents record keep all the dog but it was a technology where in the olden days you would go into a cab office and physically give them the document and they'll inspect it and photocopy it but here it's done on your phone so you upload picture and the system would then say yeah you got everything you got your insurance you got your driver's license we got proof of id or whatever it was it's done but that was a, a um, there's a flaw a massive flaw in there so I mentioned that, I said, you've got other issues, like document, forget me, like legal, like you could get shut down because, and that's going to cost me my job and all these, forget your company and that's going to, 
and he laughed at me. He laughed at me. Let me explain what Yasin tried to explain to that manager. The system allowed drivers to upload blank documents, and since there was no physical check on the insurance or the other required documentation, Uber simply let that happen. The Municipal Transit Authority, Transport for London, or TFL, wasn't looking hard enough, so they didn't know that the documentation was never verified. So the company knew there was a problem, and they knew they were under no pressure to correct it. Yassine thought that wasn't right, not fair to legitimate drivers and not fair to consumers. So he told a journalist, and the journalist exposed the flaw. And that brought him into contact with James. They managed to get a driver. They created their own uh, insurance. They called it free cover. They got the driver to upload it, they done the job. And they went into Uber's office to pe- speak to Joe Bertram. They turned around, I heard that you're exploiting your drivers, drivers don't have a say, and there's a massive loophole. And she denied all that, and then he pulled it all out to her. And then it went back to me. I got, and then Uber then reported me to the police. I got arrested. So I went in there. You got arrested? Yeah, what I did got they arrested. report you for? This is it. And it wasn't Uber in London, it was Uber BV that reported me in Holland. But reported you for what? What did Fraud. you... Oh, seriously? Yeah, yeah. So I went in there. I said, look, bottom line is, if anyone committed any fraud, that was Uber, or any, any crime here, or anything illegal or unregular, it's Uber because they failed to have my record on the system and they allowed me to do a job. But regardless whether they had that information or not, I had my document. I was licensed, I had the insurance, so you can't blame me for anything. So I confessed to them. Right? Now, one of the biggest problems I was having with drivers is they didn't like push the case forward. And Jane was one of those guys that was actually willing to put his neck on the line and push it all away. Okay, so Yassine, who now you've heard has gotten sued by Uber for fraud when he helped a journalist successfully upload a fake certificate into their system, comes across James who was suing the company for failing to share information they had about someone who had committed an assault against him. Now let's go back to James to pick up the rest of his story. There's a, there's a Supreme Court ruling um, uh, called Autotlens, which is, was really influential on this case. Autotlens was a, a car wash company at a, at, a, at, a, at a car auction site. And they had a bunch of lawyers there who were very clever who were changing the contracts every five minutes. And one of the things that is a test of whether or not you might be a worker truly self-employed is whether or not you have the right to substitute. So if I have the right to send you to work in my place, that would suggest that I'm probably not a worker or an employee, but I'm truly self-employed. And um, so AutoCleanse was quite influential um, in, in, our, in our case uh, for, for a bunch of reasons. But one of, the, one of the things that came with the Supreme Court ruling on autocleanse is that judges have the right to discard or, or what is written in contracts by an army of clever lawyers that Uber and other companies have. And instead take what they call the purposive approach. So the, 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 the judges are entitled to, uh, from the evidence uh, and from the testimony, from the evidence written and given and, 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 and read out of court or cross-examined or whatever, or testimony, they're entitled to say, I, we are going to build a factual matrix based on how things really are, not how things are written down on a paper by a bunch of clever lawyers. Uh, 
And so when 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 you leverage leveraging audit lens, um, the, our judge was able to rule that it wasn't real that we were employed by Uber BV Netherlands, and that it could only be have, have been real that we were employed by Uber London Limited. The judge ruled that Uber's London subsidiary was legally accountable for drivers, and this was a very big victory. Uber had successfully argued its way out of liability in South Africa and in other places. The London drivers won their case to be classified as workers with all that implies. But even though Uber now admits its London office has a relationship with drivers, it has appealed to the ruling that the drivers are employees. So let's get out of the weeds for just a moment. The reason this case is so important globally is that app-based transportation companies like Uber and Lyft are fighting tooth and nail to claim they have no responsibility for drivers anywhere. This issue has become a huge battle in the one place where Uber first got its start, California. Last year, drivers won a really important victory with the passage of a state law, Assembly Bill 5, that established exactly what James and Yassine were trying to win through the courts. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But first, to understand why this relationship between Uber and the drivers is even an issue, I turned to a labor lawyer, Rebecca Smith of the National Employment Law Project. Uber says it's a tech company and not a transportation company. What's your view? Is it tech or is it transport? <laughs> it is so clearly transportation. And, you know, that's an argument that uh, I've seen Uber make in court. And as lawyers often say, it doesn't pass the silly grin test. Um, courts have looked at that argument and said, no, you're not a <laughs> company. You're a dri- you drive and you hire uh, tens of thousands of drivers to uh, do your job. And in fact, Uber used to uh, advertise itself as everybody's private driver. So how do they get away with saying they're not in the transportation business? Well, I think several ways. Um, first, workers are often unable to um, contest their classification by the companies because they have signed in the very lengthy contracts that are put in front of them, take it or leave it contracts, something that says they will go to arbitration if they have any claims against the companies. And that means that they have no access to the courts. It means that in the um, 70 or so cases that have been filed against these companies, most of them have been uh, kicked out of court and sent to arbitration. And the problem with arbitration is that workers rarely go to arbitration. And even when they win, the outcome is secret. So there's been very little in the way of determinations that the companies are <clears throat> our employers under the law. Confused yet? I was. I was learning that courts in the UK were determining that gig workers were employees, 
But in the U.S., according to Rebecca Smith, they were not. As Derek told us, in South Africa, a lower court said yes, they were employees, and then the appeals court said no, they were not. I talked to activists in Brazil who had brought a case to get drivers classified as employees, and then read in late 2019 that Brazil's Supreme Court ruled they were independent contractors. And in France, drivers won a lower court ruling, and that case was on appeal and headed to France's Supreme Court. In the U.S., drivers weren't just trusting courts to help them out. They were taking a closer look at what was wrong with the law that had put them under the company's control, but wouldn't allow them to claim their employment rights. Ah, oh, here we are. California is about to create hordes of new homeless people sleeping in tents and pooping in grocery stores needing handouts. AB5, that's the heartless bill, it is going to gut the gig economy. That was a clip from a Fox News segment on Assembly Bill 5 in California. And from the hysteria level, you can guess just how well corporate executives liked this initiative. What Assembly Bill 5 does is similar to what James and Yassine have been fighting for in the United Kingdom. It clarifies that clever new technology notwithstanding, if you have control over how people work, you're their employer. But that bill now just might save drivers' lives, literally. What is often crucial in these determinations is what's the test? You know, what are the factors that we look at to determine whether someone's an independent contractor or an employee. And AB5 uses a short and simple and clear test called the ABC test. (laughs) And what that means is that if you're performing work that is part of the service of a business, for example, an Uber driver working for Uber, If you are not in business for yourself, um, and if you are subject to some direction by the company, you're an employee. The bottom line for workers is that drivers can and should receive unemployment insurance benefits. The question is really how fast can we get money into people's pockets and whether those benefits are going to be paid by federal public funds or whether the states will treat workers as employees and assess the back taxes that are owed by these companies. If you were, you know, writing legislation, what would you ask all the companies to do? Pay their taxes and make their wage reports. It's actually quite simple. It is. Do they owe the taxes or is this a question, as we were talking about before, of needing to get the legislation in place first? Well, in about half of the states, the broad legislation that we've talked about before that passed in California actually already exists for the unemployment insurance systems. So they have broad definitions of who's an employee and who's an employer. The problem is the companies have simply refused to pay their taxes. So it will take an enforcement action to get them to pay their taxes and make their wage records. And some states have started doing that. Uh, The California Attorney General just sued Uber and Lyft for many things, but in part 
for unemployment insurance taxes. And New Jersey has assessed um, $650 million against Uber for failing to pay its taxes. Wow. And I can just imagine, like, not just, uh, you know, state by state, but country by country, if they're doing this, just how important all those back taxes might be to state governments right now. Absolutely. The state unemployment insurance systems are going to run out of money. And part of the reason that they will run out of money is that they haven't been able to collect the taxes that they're owed. What I have found absolutely amazing as I continue to talk to drivers who are now fighting for unemployment claims is the recent news that Uber is laying off thousands of its office staff and at the same time putting tens of millions of dollars into a new campaign to fight AB5. Their lobbyists have introduced a referendum which they are calling the Protect App-Based Drivers and Services campaign. I took a look at the bill that they had drafted, and its main provision is to enable drivers and other gig workers to, quote, choose to be independent contractors. What it doesn't say is that it's trying to stop them from choosing to be workers. In fact, looking at some of the PR materials, it looked to me like they were outright lying about what AB5 does. I was reminded of my interview with Lauren Casey of Gig Workers Rising. You might remember, she was in episode one, and I had the chance to interview her at a very exciting time. It was the very day that AB5 passed the California state legislature last September. Even then, she predicted this fight. At the tail end of a three-day statewide action among drivers from LA to Sacramento, right, that we um, co-organized with another driver group down in Southern California and was amazing, right? A huge show of force, a huge show of unity, a really clear delivery of the message, you know, drivers want AB5 and they want a union. We were wrapping up that day and Uber and Lyft started sending out messages to riders, asking them to um, contact their legislators and to quote unquote fix AB5. They at the same time sent a message out to drivers offering a quote unquote deal. They are saying, fine, we're willing to give you A, B, and C. Um, $21 an hour only while you have a passenger in your car before expenses. Terrible. Nowhere near what drivers are demanding. Um, some lackluster benefits that wouldn't really mean much to drivers in terms of actually changing their quality of life. Yeah, that's not good either. And some nonsense boss union, you know, company-run quote-unquote driver association that has no real teeth or power. It, it was an insult, right? It was a slap in the face in a response to the action that drivers had taken that week. And then the following day to um, follow up on their deal, they said, if we can't, you know, come to some type of deal, then we'll have no other choice but to bring this issue to the ballot box in 2020. And Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash put a, a collective $90 million into a ballot initiative to bring it to the voters, right? Um, that would permanently get them out of any type of enforcement of classification. So they've made it very clear what their plan is, right? They will fight tooth and nail. They would rather put $90 million into a ballot initiative than even have to think about paying their drivers, their workers, the people who built this company on their backs a living wage. Since my interview with Lauren, Uber and Lyft have faced off against California courts. Courts ordered the companies to begin implementing AB5, and they threatened to pull out of the state rather than obey the law. 
Now they are pushing their ballot initiative and hoping to convince enough voters to change the law this November. But in the meanwhile, the tide seems to be turning elsewhere. In February this year, France's Supreme Court ruled that drivers have to be treated as employees. In Canada, the Supreme Court overturned the requirement for drivers to go through forced arbitration, opening a new path for a union there to negotiate terms and conditions for drivers. And in the UK, James and Yassine's case was heard before the country's highest court in late July. We are all expecting to hear the final verdict any day now. But James remains guarded. Well, two, two, things, two things are important about this case. Number one, why should it be down to the worker to bring these types of claims on their own back um, to get employment law enforced? It is the job of the government to enforce the law. It's not the job of, of, of workers to bring private claims. We have public law and they, these, you know, these are, these, this is the law of the land. It's the government's responsibility to police and enforce the law, uh, which it hasn't been doing. Um, that's, that's one issue I, I, I want to raise. And the second one is the fact that in this country, you know, all remedy is suspended while the, the uh, respondent in the case um, pursues appeals is, is really difficult and wrong, particularly in a minimum wage claim. You know, if, you're, if you're in 2015 trying to pursue minimum wage, and here we are 2020 and Uber still pursuing appeals, and even we win now in July, we're back to Supreme Court July 2020, even if we win that, all that'll happen is it'll get kicked down to the lower level again, we'll try and, we'll, and we'll work through the remedy there. So maybe in 2021, 2022, we'll have, we'll have finished this case. Well, if you're just trying to get minimum wage, that, you know, in a, in a job that's a tough job to sustain for seven years, uh, let alone two, um, that's not much of that's not much protection for low-paid workers. I mean, it's it's terrible, really, and and possibly cost you millions of pounds. They seem to have unlimited funds to challenge whatever decisions come down against them. So, you know, they lost in the California legislature, and then they filed their litigation, and they continue to thumb their nose at the agencies. And what we've seen elsewhere is that, yes, they will continue to appeal and appeal and appeal. And of course, now they have a ballot initiative in California that would exempt them from being employers. But I think the tide is turning um, because we're starting to get judges looking at the actual facts of the relationship between the workers and the companies and starting to say, well, sure, these workers are employees. So I really think it's just a matter of time before it is determined that these workers are employees in this country. So as you've heard, 2020 is shaping up to be quite a year for the ride-hailing app companies. They're fighting on multiple fronts, but they have a huge war chest to do that. Come November, we should all expect to hear more, both about the Supreme Court battle in the United Kingdom and the proposed ballot initiative to undermine AB5 in California. But drivers are not waiting for the fight to come to them. We'll learn more about what they are doing around the world in the next episode of The Gig. I'm Bama Athreya, and thanks for tuning in to episode three of The Gig. I'd like to thank my producer, John Ross, 
all of the people who generously shared their time for these interviews, my advisory team, and the Open Society Foundations for their generous support for this project. If you'd like to learn more about the issues or organizations, you can visit our website, thegigpodcast.com. Also, if you'd like to hear more great podcasts on similar topics, check out the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Dear friends, this is Evan Papp from Empathy Media Lab's podcast on labor, political economy, arts, and culture. Based within the Washington, D.C. Beltway, you can find us at empathymedialab.com. We are a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, which is broadcasting working people's voices 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Check out our show and all the shows elevating the voice of working people throughout the world at laborradionetwork.org.